Radio, the Global Cooperation Podcast. Special. Hi and welcome to a new episode of Corporate Radio, the Global Cooperation Podcast. We give a stage to voices, opinions and research that address the broad and decisive issues of global cooperation. My name is Janine Herbert. And I am Julia Fleck. And as with our previous episodes, we will be your show hosts for this special edition of Cooper Radio, the Global Cooperation Podcast. An unplanned special episode prompted, of course, by the war in Ukraine. For this episode, we were joined on Monday, the 7th of March, by two expert guests, professors of international relations, Tobias de Biel and Herbert Wolf, to hear their analysis of the causes and motivations behind this war, how to get out of the spiral of escalation, what possible scenarios to end the war could look like, and the consequences of this confrontation for the future of the European security architecture and the international system. Tobias de Biel is Deputy Director of the Institute for Development and Peace and Co-Director of the Kater Hamburger College Center for Global Cooperation Research, both at the University of Duisburg-Essen. There, he is also Professor for International Relations in the Department of Political Science since 2006. His research interests lie in the areas of state failure and global governance, state building and violent conflicts, and structures of violence and development chances in times of globalization. Herbert Wolf is Professor of International Relations and former Director of the Bonn International Center for Conflict Studies, BICC, or BIC. Between 2012 and 2013, we were very lucky to have him as Senior Expert Fellow here at the Center for Global Cooperation Research. To mention just a few of his current positions, Herbert serves on the scientific boards of ZIPRI, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, and of the Center for Conflict Studies of the University of Marburg in Germany. He is also a Senior Fellow at BIC and an Adjunct Senior Researcher at the Institute for Development and Peace at the University of Duisburg-Essen. His research fields include, to mention just a few, UN peacekeeping, the internationalization and privatization of conflict, and the privatization of armed forces, arms production and trade, as well as arms control and disarmament, especially within the UN system. A very warm welcome to you both, Tobias and Herbert, and thank you very much for joining us on Cooper Radio today. Thank you. Thank you for also from my side. Before we dive into the expert questions, I would be interested in your personal uh, impressions and your thoughts when you see the images on the news and, and hear about the, the ongoing crisis. Maybe Tobias. Yes, I was simply shocked. Um, I expected a war, not a limited military operation, but not a full-scale war with such a degree of brutality. And the pictures make clear that Putin is willing to use full-scale violence. And this is really not only shocking, but also very disturbing emotionally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think we're all deeply shocked. And uh, Tobias, you said you expected a war, although not quite of this magnitude. So that makes me quite wonder how long was this war in the making and was there ever a real chance for diplomatic solutions before this final escalation, Herbert? Now, in hindsight, we can see, no, diplomacy did not have a chance. Putin apparently um, had his clear mind set on this uh, invasion of the Ukraine and all the efforts by um, President Biden, by Macron, by uh, Chancellor Scholz were in vain because he was set on having this invasion. 
Um, if we look at how long was it in the making, I think um, we have been a bit naive after the um, annexation of um, the Crimea in 2014. Um, and since then, I think there have been very meticulous war preparations. Yes, I, I would agree with Herbert. Um, still, my feeling is that uh, the West uh, did not really um, engage as heavily in diplomacy as it could have in the last year. Uh, maybe Putin was set for war and every effort would have been in vain, but I could have expected to take up at least some of the concerns and co considerations of the Russian side. And I would have liked to see a concerted diplomatic effort uh, with Putin, Macron and Olaf Scholz around one table. Okay, so Putin started it and now it escalated and diplomacy did not work. So what could Putin want to achieve in Ukraine? So what's his final goal? Where does he see, what does he see there? Well, he started with rather limited goals a few years ago uh, by simply asking that the Ukraine would not become a NATO member and that it would have something like a neutral status but things have changed over time and uh, he was quite clear that he wants a demilitarization which is much more than neutrality and he speaks of denazification which is a very cynical expression uh, but it means he wants regime change so the goals are far-reaching he wants that the annexation of crimea will be accepted by the international community that the so-called people's republics um, in the east of the countries will be accepted by the Ukraine and by the West, and he wants regime change in Kiev. And this is so far-reaching that compromise is, is very difficult to see at the horizon. Uh, Tobias mentioned that this was not Putin's first aggression or the first aggression that we saw here and diplomatic efforts failed, we should ask what mistakes or miscalculations by the West contributed to this escalation? Was it simply too soft or what is behind it? What could be criticized here? Well, I think we should go back um, quite a bit to the end of the Cold War. I think the first big mistake was made when uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, then president of the Soviet Union, offered his concept a common house of Europe. This has never been seriously discussed in the West. On the contrary, um, the West has taken the weakness of the Soviet Union and then after the implosion of the uh, Soviet Union, the weakness of Russia and um, were quite triumphant um, about the end of history and similar terms. I think that was one mistake. A second mistake was made um, and I would like to remind that Vladimir Putin, the present president, in 2001 spoke in the German parliament, by the way, in perfect German. He got big applause for statements like, we need a modern, lasting, stable international security architecture. That was Putin in 2001, not the Putin 20 years later. But I think these were the mistakes of the West um, moving NATO uh, towards the East, 
accepting all the new members in NATO without considering um, Russia's security concerns. I think we could have had a different type of security architecture in Europe, including Russia, than we have today. And I would like to add that uh, not only Russia, but also China and other states have been um, deceived and disappointed in a couple of wars by either the NATO or the US. Um, the Kosovo war, uh, though it might be legitimate, legitimate uh, from moral reasons, was against international law. It was not uh, supported by an vote of the UN Security Council. Uh, the Iraq war in 2003 was as well um, against international law and the Libya intervention um, was backed by the Security Council, but NATO states went beyond the mandate. And this means that for Russia, the West had become quite incalculable and was not seen as adhering to international law if Western interests go in a different direction. So I think that partly the West also created um, Russia as it is today. Maybe, maybe um, we should also mention at this point that all of these mistakes by NATO and missed opportunities that cannot legitimize an unprovoked aggression. We should be clear about that. And maybe as an interesting aside, um, President Putin today uses uh, the same legal argument that he has to prevent a genocide in the Ukraine as NATO did in the war of Kosovo. So he's well in this framework that the West has set up as international law, even if this is propaganda, but he still uses this legal argument that he needs to prevent a genocide in the eastern part of Ukraine. With the clear difference that there is no genocide that we know of in the eastern part of Ukraine. Yes, that's, uh, that's of course a big and an important difference, but uh, nevertheless, Putin, um, as I said, uses these arguments to try to, in, to create the impression as if this was within the accepted international law. Mm. Yes, and the term genocide has also been quite loosely used by the West. There was a genocide in Bosnia-Herzegovina, but it's difficult to speak of a genocide in, in the Kosovo. Um, so it is uh, mentioned too early by political leaders in order to mobilize legitimacy behind their strategies. That that seems to be the tr the big tragedy of the term genocide, I think, that it it's often applied too early in situations where it might not be applicable and too late in situations where it is. Yes. Um, Maybe, maybe to stay a bit on, on this mistake point a bit longer, um, do you think there would have been an opportunity to prevent the present escalation before it got to that point? Well, I'm, as we said, there were many missed opportunities uh, by diplomacy. I think um, there would have been opportunities to bring in concepts like 
neutrality as Finland and Sweden and Austria, um, but that was never an issue in the case of Ukraine. And um, I would also like to remind that the annexation of the Crimea, although this was uh, against international law, um, they had, even though it was maybe a fake uh, referendum, which a majority, um, of course, um, accepted that Russia would annex the Crimea. So there were plenty of missed opportunities, especially in ignoring the calls by the Russian government for security guarantees. And actually, we need to look for a world that does not go back to Yalta with spheres of influence, but which accepts also that there are legitimate security interests. And um, in this triumphant mode that Herbert has mentioned, the West um, left open how far NATO would reach in the near future. And this was a major mistake from my understanding. Um, one can argue Georgia and the Ukraine are sovereign states. They have the right to uh, access um, the alliance they want to access. At the same time, diplomacy has to be rational and you have to take into account the counterpart. And this was not done because of a feeling of moral, of political, of economic, and maybe even military superiority. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I, I have the feeling that the current situation kind of proves the point of, of Eastern European countries who want to join the EU or NATO because they see that they are otherwise on their own. Well, yes, in, in, in retrospect, we are all uh, much more uh, rational about uh, judging the situation as it is. Um, but we do not know if the uh, common European house that Gorbachev has uh, suggested, if that would have been accepted, what the course of history would be at then. Could you elaborate a bit more on that common European house? What, what would that have looked like? It, it is a concept that has originally been formulated by a commission led by Olaf Palme, the former Swedish uh, prime minister. Uh, it was called common security. And it said in the, in the situation where you have nuclear weapons on both sides of the two, of, of this, uh, two blocks, um, you cannot ask to have your own security by increasing your own military strengths. That's impossible. You have to consider um, the um, security of your, in positive terms, your counterpart, the other side of the block. And this concept has been taken up by uh, Gorbachev, and he uh, called for a, a, a European security architecture, European, including Russia in this. And this has never been taken up seriously. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, moving on from the mistakes of the past and looking more at the present situation, uh, does Ukraine stand a chance at all for, for a continued existence as an independent state? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sure uh, that it has a chance and that it will exist as, a, as an independent state also in the future. 
uh, I'm afraid that uh, Russia is able to win the war militarily mm -hmm. because it is willing to use the degree of brutality that I mentioned in the beginning and has overwhelming forces. But politically and economically, Russia will suffer from the war and it's only a matter of time until the Ukraine will again become an independent state. So um, I'm I'm not only optimistic, I'm I'm really sure about that, but it might make longer than we actually want. And what can or should be done to support Ukraine and to maybe minimize or lessen the, the suffering there as much as possible? Well, a lot has been done. I mean, first of all, uh, we are now exerting pressure on Russia in a way that have, we have not experienced before. Secondly, the Ukraine receives weapons. Uh, thirdly, sure enough, we should support civil society in the Ukraine. It was so important for democratization and it will be important in, in the future. Fourthly, the European states have changed their refugee policies and now accept more than a million Ukrainian refugees and there are more to come. So I think this is quite a lot. At the same time, there are currently demands to also send fighter jets and to establish no-fly zones. And I think both steps bring us very close to an active involvement of NATO in the war. I'm very skeptical with regard to fighter jets. They would be flown by, they would be conducted by Ukrainian pilots for sure, but they, they are able to really harm Russia. And it's, it's, so to say, the last step in an escalation ladder before you formally get involved into a war. And if you establish a no-fly zone, it would mean that NATO fighter jets would have to fight Russian fighter jets. And this would be a direct military confrontation. So we have to be willing to give support to the Ukraine, but we have to be aware that a nuclear escalation is far from being possible. It's, it's not far from being possible. And um, in very coded language, Putin in his own incalculable rationality uh, has hinted that they are an option in his mind. And this is um, a new situation and we should be risk averse and not try to escalate even further. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if I could chime in here very quickly, Tobias, uh, I want to pick up another point you just mentioned. Uh, you mentioned pressure from all sides around the globe on Russia and combined efforts beyond political efforts. So many private actors are getting involved. We see protests all over the world. People are coming together. Even Elon Musk got involved and Apple, Google, Netflix, they withdraw from Russia and they stop providing their services. Is this very unexpected, this combined effort from all branches of society? And what can it actually do? Uh, what's the impact of these measures? What can they add? 
Well, it first of all harms, sure enough, uh, Russia economically. But I think the major aim is to really um, inflict on Russia's reputation and also the more than 140 states that voted in the UN General Assembly for the resolution show that Russia is really uh, in the corner. And um, I think it was not expected to that degree and it perfectly makes sense, but um, you have to somehow interact also if someone is in the corner and has dangerous weapons at his disposal. So we see that um, Russia is now being pushed into a position where it becomes a pariah state, but uh, still it is allied to China in some degree, and um, it will try to strike back. So I think though it isn't success, we should not be triumph triumphant about it. Well, maybe, maybe I should also add, um, we should not be too over enthusiastic about it. There is not only China that abstained, it's also India. So the two big uh, population-wise giants in Asia um, did not join forces with the West in uh, trying to isolate Russia completely. And um, to me, uh, China is an important player in this uh, big, in quotation marks, chess game that's going on at the moment. If China um, puts its foot down, the Chinese government, then Russia will really be in trouble. But I do not see that um, because Russia has its own agenda and has uh, on its agenda, for example, Taiwan. Um, so I'm not too optimistic about this complete isolation of Russia. It's unprecedented. The economic sanctions are unprecedented in history, but still um, they are not fully isolated. Maybe to, to pursue this, this question of the involvement of China and India or their, their abstention for a moment. Um, what was their, I mean, for, for China, it's because they are interested in uh, in, in Taiwan, but for India, what was their reason to abstain? Well, in December, um, the Indian Prime Minister um, Narendra Modi was in uh, Moscow and signed big contracts for economic cooperation. And most importantly, uh, Russia is the major supplier of weapons mm -hmm. for India uh, that has been um, for several decades, a long cooperation between Russia and India in the production of arms. India, by the way, is the only country that got licenses from Russia to produce uh, Soviet and then Russian weapons in India. So that's the major um, motivation for Modi to abstain. Now, all of a sudden, India finds itself in the same boat with China, and they're actually arming because of China. So it's a very peculiar, very complicated situation. Um, and it's not so easily cut into East versus West or whatever categories we were used from the Cold War times. Mm. So what are the possible or the likely scenarios to, to end the war in Ukraine and to stop this, this spiral of escalation that is pulling in more and more players from all around the world? Well, they're, they're 
probably several different types of outcomes that when uh, that one can foresee. I would not rule out that there is still a possibility for a diplomatic um, resolution of the conflict. And many countries, and especially smaller countries like Israel and Turkey, are trying at the moment very hard to act as mediators. And that's a very positive sign. And um, apparently, the Russian and the Turkish uh, foreign minister are going to meet soon on this issue. So I would not rule this out. That would be, of course, the most optimistic scenario. A second scenario to me is uh, because of the effectiveness of the economic um, sanctions, an implosion of Russia, an implosion of the government of Russia. Um, and this is going to hurt Russia very much. And I'm not sure how um, strong Putin is, how, of course, he has a very repressive power apparatus um, to, to, to counter this. But in the long run, I would not rule out the possibility uh, that uh, there will be a change of government in Russia that would make an entirely new setting. The, the third possibility, and uh, that's probably one of the more realistic ones, is a military stalemate, and that we will get into a situation where Russia, with its tanks and uh, fighter aircraft, dominates the Ukraine, but the Ukrainian people um, will uh, not accept this, and there will be a war of attrition, as we have seen it for so many years in Afghanistan. And both Russia or at that time, the Soviet Union and the West have experienced that a very poor country can sustain this military power for quite some time. That's not unrealistic. And, and the last and probably worst scenario is that what Tobias has already mentioned, um, the more they are pushed into the corner, the more military power they will use. And we will see destruction in Ukraine as in the case of Grozny or Aleppo in Syria. So that's to me the most pessimistic and unfortunately not the, not the most unlikely scenario. Mm. And um, I think you, you, you said earlier that Putin was probably striving for a regime change in, in Ukraine. Can he still achieve that goal or whatever other goal he had with the invasion? And if he can't, What are the implications of that? Because he he seems to be really backed into that corner and has to try to save face somehow. Well, um, this this concept of regime change was not invention in Russia. That was an invention in the West. And if we look at where this has happened and where it has been tried and how successful, how unsuccessful this has been all the time, I can't imagine that Russia that has less economic uh, power, less um, political clout than the West, um, that, that is a, a successful concept. I cannot imagine that. Of course, what could happen is that they install a, a puppet regime in, in the Ukraine and we have situations like we have in neighboring Belarus since uh, decades. Yes, I'm, I'm afraid that this is quite an realistic option. Um, maybe we have an exile government or government that hides in guerrilla tactics in the Ukraine, but um, 
this term denazification used by Putin is a clear signal that they want to install a new government. And uh, I'm afraid that in the short term it's possible, but it will not last. And um, this is why it is so important to mobilize international support because uh, the acceptance of a possible puppet regime um, will be uh, left to the international community. And if there are only a few members like Belarus and others would accept it, it would, um, it would be an extreme blow against uh, Russia's ambitions. Um, but Yulia, you also mentioned the aspect of face saving. And first of all, maybe we should ask, do we want to give Putin a chance to save his face? Uh, because actually he is like acting like a criminal. At the same time, if we do not see a change in Russia for the next month to come, um, it might be the only way to de-escalate the conflict. And um, I think the West has to consider, although it is very difficult in this stage, where it is willing to give concessions to Russia that do not go too far, but that go beyond current positions. And this is also a question for sure that um, is posed with regard to the Ukrainian government. So um, maybe moving beyond the immediate outcome of this war, how can we interpret the actions of Russia right now? What is the lens through which we can understand them? I mean, some people are reminded of the Cold War era, even although many thought, okay, it's 2022, this is long over. So is this actually a new act of imperialism? Is this a break with the world order that we established after the Cold War? Um, I mean, how can we place this? Yes, first of all, um, the language as well as um, the actions of Russia um, reflect a new kind of imperialism, an empire that um, is comprised of Russia, Belarus, and the Ukraine. And there are historical considerations that Putin seems to have got closer to who really aim in this direction. And this goes pretty much beyond even the Cold War. Um, A second major point from my perspective is that after, let's say, the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Berlin Crisis, um, the East-West confrontation was very much shaped by rationality, by risk averseness, not least by the apparatchiks of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And this has changed tremendously. Um, Putin is very risk prone and uses risks as a st strategy. And he wants to be uncalculable. And his rhetorics have changed so much over the last 20 years, as Herbert has hinted at, that we are, from my perspective, in a situation which is much more dangerous than the 1970s and 1980s. 
because we cannot have confidence that both sides um, adhere to the logics of deterrence. And in particular, Putin um, has lowered the threshold uh, for the use of nuclear weapons by saying that those who will oppose the invasion from outside would face something unprecedented in Europe before. And this is a clearly coded message. And it's very difficult to say, is, it, is he just playing poker with us? Is it a bluff? But the danger is so high that we should not speculate, but be prepared. And um, I, I do not want to overestimate now the threat of nuclear war, but uh, we have been close to it in the Berlin crisis and we needed negotiations and we needed an agreement in the Cuban missile crisis, sorry for that. And I think that we have to look for a superpower arrangement for the future. <laughs> I, I don't like that prospect, or I have been struggling for the past week or so with the idea that, that someone would be crazy enough to, to actually use nuclear weapons in Europe. Um, I don't know. Well, we, we should, of mm. course, keep in mind uh, this old saying of the Cold War times, which still is true today, that the one who uses nuclear weapons first will die second. Um, this still holds. But unfortunately, we are back to the situation of mutual assured destructions of, mm. the, of the worst times of the Cold War. Um, but to be as mentioned, the difference between the Cold War and today, I would like to add another dimension. During the Cold War, it was two blocks, each had its own dominant hegemon. That's a different situation now. And that's where I really have my hopes that we do not have this block confrontation anymore. We have a much more multipolar or non-polar non world um, with a lot of different players. And like countries, I mentioned Israel and Turkey, um, that are certainly not superpowers. They are not even regional powers. Uh, that they can have an influence on the situation. This is really my hope uh, that it is not this this very tight block confrontation that we had in the past. Mm. But let me let me ask. Let me mention another negative aspect. During the Cold War times, we had the belief that economic relations between countries would soften um, the situation and would be a guarantee because uh, economically interconnected countries would not fight a war with each other. Uh, now we see that this concept holds uh, no longer. I think what, what you've alluded to is that while it's not a strict block confrontation, there is this trend back to, to a division of the world into spheres of influence. How, how would that look and, and maybe what would be further implications of such a division? Well, there, there are at least a couple of uh, trends of the past uh, besides this um, current war in the Ukraine where we could see a move towards spheres of influence. Number one was the 
power competition between China and the U.S., which uh, during the presidential times of Donald Trump um, was really instrumentalized. He used it to create this situation. And now this has been taken up uh, by Putin by saying that he needs his security guarantee. What could the security guarantees be? This could be only a, a group of states that function as a buffer between NATO on the one side and Russia on the other side. Now, this is the thinking of, of the past century, where, of the great powers in the, in the 19th century in Europe, where you had this balance of power. So definitely there are at least these two trends back into, into a situation of spheres of influence. Whereas we had believed that globalization would be uh, going beyond this. And what would that mean maybe for the, for these small states that, you know, that would have to act as buffer states because they would no longer be free to choose their path? Well, I mean, let's look at the situation of Finland uh, during the Cold War times. Finland certainly did not only decide to be uh, neutral because it had its, its criticism of NATO or so, but they were afraid of the Soviet Union. Um, so, uh, but that was a position that for many decades has functioned fairly well for Finland and for Sweden and for Austria. So we shouldn't rule out this possibility um, that we um, need this type of block confrontation as we had it. I think neutrality could be a concept that would lead us out of this confrontational situation at the moment. And I, I would agree with you, Julia. It means that there is no complete freedom to do what you want to do, but uh, you have constraints. Uh, every state has constraints and has to act accordingly and uh, diplomacy has to take normative um, standards into account but also interests of the other side and so we have to strike a balance between norms and also something like realpolitik. So that brings us kind of full circle and back to the question. So how how do we deal with Russia in the future and how could security be ensured in Europe in the future? Yes, first of all, it's very important that NATO makes clear under which circumstances it would reduce sanctions and under which circumstances it would be willing to cooperate with Russia. Um, so that there is a clear signal what kind of behavior would be um, welcomed by the West. Um, I do not see, as long as we do not have um, a settlement of the war, um, that there is more than a minimum of cooperation. But we have to keep communication channels open. This is so important in times of crisis. And um, we should be clear that um, security guarantees can be given. But there's one point that Putin is afraid of that we cannot guarantee. And this is the spreading of democracy. And this is one of the motivations behind Putin's war 
that he is afraid that the Belarus movement, the Ukrainian democracy, spill over to Russia. And we should not promote this development, but, but it is clear that this is the risk for the Putin regime. And this is a point where we cannot give any kind of guarantee. The Russians have to, the Russian government has to react to it and is is quite clear that there must be an internal change in the near future. If Putin is able to do it, it's very doubtful after this war, but it's a real challenge. And also the economic model of Russia is not sustainable. And the West should be willing to support a new economic model um, but only for sure if the imperialist rhetorics and actions stop. So at some point, Russia will have to be kind of brought back out of its isolation and, and these sanctions will have to end. But for now, we see this increasing isolation of Russia, at least from, from a majority of countries. Um, and what are the implications of this isolation for the future relationship between Russia and the West? And, and also in more, more in general for the global order with an orientation maybe towards China? Well, first of all, I think we should not make the mistake to um, try to isolate Russia and its whole population because there is quite a resistance against this and, and criticism of this war within Russia. And uh, this present government of Russia is not the Russian population. And therefore, we have to be prepared um, to uh, have not in isolation that will last for decades. Um, we have to hope for a change of government in Russia to normalize our relations with Russia. In the long term, there is no way to have security in Europe without Russia. It cannot be against Russia. It has to be with Russia. So this we have to keep in mind when we, uh, with with all our uh, anger about this war in the Ukraine, about the brutality of what they do, but we have to keep this in mind, the frame of reference in Europe for security has to include Russia. Thank you. Um, that was the last question that I had written down. So I think I would give you two the opportunity if you have any more comments to conclude. Yes, I think the most important point is that in this situation of an escalation where it is clear who is responsible for it, we still have to be sober and rational. And um, we should not put more wood into the fire or oil into the fire. And we should think of compromises. It may not be the right time today to submit such proposals, but um, I'm very concerned that everyone thinks Russia will completely lose the war. And as I said in the beginning, uh, it may lose economically and politically, but militarily it may win the war. And um, we have not seen the full-scale brutality that is possible. And maybe, maybe as a reminder to ourselves, we should not also we should not believe that strengthening our military will, in the long run, solve um, this conflict with Russia. 
um, it's understood that we now think about it that NATO is increasing its presence on its eastern flank, but that cannot be the final answer. All right. Thank you both very much. And with this call for de-escalation and, and diplomatic rationality, I think we can conclude this episode. Thank you so much for your remarks and for being on our podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much, Tobias and Herbert, for your insights and analysis. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this special episode of Radio, the Global Cooperation Podcast. We will, of course, continue to observe the developments in and around Ukraine. And although these words feel kind of hollow at the moment, we hope that a way out of this war or at least a viable ceasefire can be negotiated soon to end the suffering and destruction and before it escalates even further. If you are interested in more insights and background analysis or in the other research done at the center, please consider to follow or subscribe to Radio on your podcast app of choice. You can also send us an email with your questions or thoughts to podcast at gcr21.uni-due.de. We'll put that in the episode description or on Twitter using the hashtag Cooperadio Podcast. Cooperadio, the Global Cooperation Podcast, is produced by the Käthe Hamburger Kolleg Center for Global Cooperation Research at the University of Duisburg-Essen. Additional voiceover, Janine Herbert and Julia Fleck. Ideas, script and editing, Janine Herbert and Julia Fleck. Cover design, Milena Gerda.